after the Buddha's awakening, when he decided to speak about his understanding, his realization, he located the five ascetics that he had practiced with. And he spoke about his realization in the first uh, discourse that he gave them. And he spoke about what are known as the Four Noble Truths. And in brief, the Four Noble Truths are the truth of dukkha, which those of you who've been on retreat with me before know quite well. Dukkha is the pain, the vulnerability, insecurity, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned life, which the Buddha understood in the second noble truth is caused by craving. The third noble truth is the acknowledgement that there is the end of craving, the end of craving is possible, leading to a drastic reduction in dukkha. And most importantly for us here, the fourth noble truth is the path to this liberation. And this development of the path essentially involves three training, three meditations, if you will. And the first is the practice of sila, which we're doing here uh, by living according to the precepts. And it essentially involves letting go of intentions to speak and act in ways that cause harm. The second training is more powerful and more subtle in that it is the development of tranquility of mind or samadhi in the Pali language. And it is uh, the letting go, again, of obsessing, mental obsessing. But even with letting go of harmful intentions and letting go of obsessing in the mind, Conditions are unpredictable, and we never know when things are going to be challenging and we'll, again, get caught suffering in some way. So the Buddha offered a third training practice, and that was the development of right understanding or the purifying of one's understanding of wrong views and opinions. This requires letting go or not clinging to views, opinions that are wrong. All of these practices rest on the development of awareness to recognize what are harmful intentions, to recognize the obsessing traits of the mind, to recognize the beliefs and opinions which just don't square with how reality is being observed, in order that we can let go, that we can stop clinging to this which is causing the suffering. So the work of awareness is to know these things. 
and it is the purpose of practice to grow in wisdom. So if we're developing this awareness, as we are here, what is it that is to be known through awareness? Well, as we have guided you or instructed you today, it's to know each moment's experience, which will involve all of the intentions, whether they're harmful or not harmful, to speak and act. It will also involve all of the observations of mind that reveal the obsessing of the mind, which I'm sure you've noticed today. And it will also eventually reveal uh, the attitudes, beliefs, understandings, misunderstandings in the mind that are, well, for most of us, deeply hidden. We live a life of assumptions and misbelief and act on them hoping to be happy. That's not good enough, as we have seen. And so it is through the development of awareness that we gradually cultivate uh, and see the unfolding of wisdom, a right understanding. Tonight I want to speak about how to cultivate this awareness without adding more harmful intention, obsessing of mind, and wrong understanding, and how to support the unfolding of wisdom. When I talk about, or when I mention the word wisdom, we should understand that wisdom means understanding the way things are. And wisdom comes to us in three ways. And the first is through listening to talks like this, if what is being heard is true. It can be helpful. It can help us to understand our life, what's going on. It can help us to make wise decisions. So through information from others, from reading books, uh, discussing with other people, we can uh, begin to hear what, well, may be, may be true, may be wise to, to take in. Secondly, we can use what we have acquired through <coughs> listening and through dialogue or discussion and books, and we can think about it. We can apply our natural intelligence and we can use logic and just the power of thinking to arrive at understanding, personal understanding that helps us make wise decisions in life. So we have the right information, or if we have the right information and we apply it intelligently, or we use our intelligence on this right information, and we practice awareness, we can develop insight. And insight is that uh, empirical, 
knowledge that comes from direct observation of your own experience, of observing your own mind and body, and deeply understanding how it is, how it works, what in this whole process is suffering, non-suffering, what causes suffering, what leads to the end of suffering. And it is this insight which is liberating. It's this understanding which is liberating. We can only know for ourselves from observing ourselves. Liberation isn't in a book. It can't be given to us. We aren't born with it. But it's something that we can uh, reach through the development of the fourth noble truth of the, the Eightfold Path. Now, when we talk about knowing the truth, the word knowing encompasses uh, several activities of mind, which I want to tease apart a little bit. Because we also say that the uh, capacity of the mind or the nature of the mind is to know. And when we use that phrase, that the, the activity of the mind or the nature of the mind or the capacity of the mind is to know, we mean it is the mind that knows everything. The body doesn't know anything. It is the mind that knows. It is the mind that takes in uh, through the sense doors all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, thoughts, ideas, and cognizes them. This level of mental activity is called consciousness or vijnana. And it is the, bare, the barest functioning of the mind to take in, to uh, contact the world, if you will, through the sense doors. But this vijnana doesn't recognize, it doesn't value, it doesn't uh, understand what it is taking in. That is another activity of mind called sanya. Sanya is the capacity of the mind to recognize the distinctiveness of each experience so that the mind uh, can recognize the difference between a cat and a dog because it takes a look and it says do 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 compares it to an internal uh, catalog of things that are known he says, oh, this is a cat, this is a dog. And this ability to perceive and to distinguish one thing from another is another kind of knowing, what we sometimes call knowing in the mind. But even with both of those, they may happen, vijnana or cognizing and perception or, or the ability to distinguish, may happen without there being any awareness. I'll give you an example. Sometime today, you probably were, or you may have been lost in thought. During which time, you were not aware that you were lost in thought. You were gone, absent. But the thinking was going on, and you were thinking about something at work, at home, or something. And quite suddenly and unintentionally, apparently, you came out of that train of thought and you recognize that you're 
oh, sitting in a room here meditating. And in that moment, not having known anything of what you were thinking about, you may remember it. And so the mind was knowing all of those thoughts. It was even recognizing what was being thought, but there was no awareness of it until after it kind of came to an end and there was awareness that could then reflectively remember and reconstruct what was cognized and what was uh, perceived. So just because the mind is active and doing its thing and even recognizing a lot of what's going on, there may be no awareness of that. Our practice here is to develop this awareness to develop the awareness uh, that recognizes in the moment what the mind is doing, what it is cognizing, what it is feeling, what it is recognizing, the processes that are going on, because it is when we are, or when there is awareness at the time it occurs, we know what is wholesome and unwholesome. We know at that time. And this guides our choices in life, making wise decisions or, or not. And this wise decision-making is the activity of panya, or wisdom. To see clearly and to know clearly, to be aware at the time whether this activity of speaking, acting, or doing is coming from a place that's going to cause harm to yourself or others or not. And this is wisdom. Now, it is wisdom that understands the objects that are cognized, perceived. It understands them correctly, not wrongly. Delusion, on the other hand, understands experience wrongly. Delusion doesn't prevent us from experience, from having experience, from recognizing experience. It doesn't prevent us from seeing one another, hearing what's being said, feeling, feelings. But delusion causes the mind to understand what is perceived, to understand it wrongly. And so we not only want to just be aware, we want to be aware with wisdom, with the right understanding. So let me give you an example. Amongst us here, there's probably uh, a carpenter, an environmentalist, uh, maybe uh, a sawmiller, maybe, uh, someone who owns property, someone who likes trees, and someone who finds trees a big bother. So now you suppose you had this uh, property developer, an environmentalist, and a forester, a carpenter and a sawmiller, all looking at this huge redwood out on this piece of land. Now, each one of them is going to see, cognize, the same thing. There's a certain shape and a certain color, and they see it. They all see the same thing. But because of their different conditioning, their past conditioning, their knowledge, their understanding, their values in life. They don't actually see the tree. They see what they, or they perceive what they value. And so the 
forester sees a specific a kind of tree, a redwood, that has, uh, it's either, a, a, because of its size, it's a certain age and it has a certain health and it's, it's healthy or not, and, and it really understands where it is in its life cycle. The environmentalist sees the same tree, but uh, sees it really as a symbol of Mother Nature and the, the value of uh, nature on Earth and, and just uh, a totem or an icon of uh, all that's good on Earth. The uh, property developer sees it as being in the wrong place, because that's right where the driveway is supposed to go, and just sees it as um, a bother, something to be removed and gotten rid of. On the other hand, the uh, saw miller looks at that and says, geez, that's a couple hundred thousand board feet at you know, $5, $10 a board foot, and he sees dollar bills. And you know, the, the, the carpenter or the uh, woodworker sees it and says, God, that's really beautiful wood. It's a nice straight tree. And you might ask yourself, well, which one is right? Who is right? And in one sense, they're all right because they are seeing the tree, but they're understanding it very differently. They're understanding it due to their prior conditioning, through how they've been trained to perceive that kind of tree. Now, what would a yogi see? Yeah. A yogi, hopefully, would, would see the tree, but would understand all that. He would understand this is a tree, it's its place in nature, and would understand that there's a value to it, that it's, it may be in the right place or the wrong place, according to some, would, would be able to take in every facet of that, valuing all of them, if you will, or, or just taking them in, just recognizing that this is another way of seeing this tree. And if a decision had to be made, then try to make a decision that would uh, cause the least harm to the least number of people. So each of us is looking at our own mind, and we're looking at our own body. And what are we seeing? Well, some of us are not seeing the truth. We're seeing our own perceptions. We're seeing what we've been trained to see, what we've been taught to believe which sometimes is not very liberating. I had a really good experience of this uh, differences of perception and the value of meditation. A couple of years ago, I, in the development of our sanctuary on Maui, we're doing a water improvement project for the county water department and it's costing a lot of money. We and our neighbors are doing this. And it was just getting so expensive that I wanted an appointment with the deputy director to see if there's some way we could reduce the cost of the project to us. So I called, and I made the appointment, and he said, okay, come in. And when I got there, I had an agenda of points that I thought we could maybe some way of reducing the cost of the project. And he had with him his assistant and the head engineer and a couple of other consultants from within the water department. So we sat down and I handed out my agenda to all of them and proceeded to inquire whether we could reduce 
the cost to us by reducing the size of the water tank from 10,000 gallons to 1,000 gallons. And the engineer said, hmm. I mean, the, the deputy director said, hmm, and talked to the engineer, and they looked in the books, and they came back a few minutes later and said, no, that won't be possible because section 3.2 says, no, it's got to be 10,000 gallons. Okay, well, maybe we could reduce the size of the pipe going into the tank from eight inches to six inches, and because it's you know several thousand feet of this pipe underground, that would reduce you know fifty thousand dollars or so. And uh, they had another discussion, and after a few minutes, they came back and said, "No, that's not going to be possible. We need eight-inch pipe going into this tank." And uh, okay, so then I had another idea. Well, what about if we reduced you know, the, the pressure relief valves from three to just two because the elevation drop really wasn't necessary to have three, only two, and that would save us, you know, $100,000. And so they had another discussion, and no, we'd like to have it this way. And so after a few more of these, and the answer was no in each one, the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you. Life's unfair. Well, I certainly did not need him to remind me. But in that moment, my mind goes, and all the possible ways of reacting to what he just said came to mind. You know, indignation and anger and humiliation and just fear of how much it was actually going to cost. And it all just goes rolling through the mind. Any, which, any one of them I could have just kind of blurted out in a unmindful rant, but fortunately, having some practice, I could see them all go by and was just kind of waiting for the right one to come <laughs> I guess, I guess, because eventually, and it wasn't, it probably wasn't too long, it seemed like hours, but it was probably within 10 seconds, my mind arrived at, oh, this is the way it is, this, this is the way it is. And the corollary to that was, this can be dealt with. We can deal with this. And that was the end of it. We are faced with this kind of situation often. Many times a day, we're, we, we're put in a situation where we see, or if we have some awareness, we see the tendency to react not always skillfully. And if we can just bear with the shame and the humiliation and the fear and the anger and the indignation, and, and we feel them and we see them and we know them, and we don't buy into them, the mind will arrive at a place of wisdom. What we're doing here is learning how to recognize, withstand, endure, and wait for the mind to arrive at a place of wisdom in relationship to all that you've seen today. In the development of mindfulness, there are a couple of understandings which are helpful to have in your mind as you begin to look at what's going on here. 
And we call these right views because sometimes they're not so apparent, they're a little counterintuitive, and the way I hear it is it's important to hear how the Buddha understood this, even if we, through our own experience, cannot yet confirm it. We don't have to believe it, we just need to hear that it might be this way. And as we practice, if we practice effectively, efficiently, we, our understanding may come into alignment with the way the Buddha understood. So it's good to hear that even though we are observing in our practice this mind and this body, to think of it as my mind and my body is not particularly helpful. But rather to see it as what is being observed is the nature of the mind, the nature of mental activity, and the nature of the body. Because remember this morning when it was really cool out this morning and the sun came up? And even though it was cool, when you stood in the sun, it felt pleasant. Right? It felt nice. It was warm. It felt nice. That feeling of warmth and pleasantness was the same for each one of us. It's a natural reaction. It's a natural effect of the causes of the sun striking the skin in the coolness of the morning. And so it's not particular, it's not unique, it's not special to you. This is just natural cause and effect. It's in the nature of the body to have this experience. It's in the nature of the mind to feel pleasant or to, feel, to be happy with that pleasant feeling. And so when we can begin to see experience in, with this understanding that it is the nature of the body that's being observed, it's the nature of the mind, it is in the nature of the natural mental activity that we're seeing, then we begin to uh, not necessarily take things less personally, but not be so jerked around by them. And so it is this uh, understanding that it is just physical and mental experience, naturally occurring due to causes and conditions, most of which are very impersonal. We didn't make the sun come up. We didn't make the skin feel warm. We didn't make it, the coolness feel that way. It just happens. And yet we all know it. We all experienced it. We all cognized it. We all perceived it. How did we understand it? If we understand it as, I'm doing this or this is happening to me, there may be some attachment there, something to let go of there. If we see it as, this is just what's happening, there may be more, uh, more freedom there. We should begin to distinguish what of all of that activity is the natural activity of the mind, the natural functioning of the mind, and what of all that activity is your adding personal preference. Because, you know, the sun comes up, the feeling of warmth happens and is known. And then, this is the natural activity of the mind. The mind is, is knowing this. 
And then we add the layer of, I like this. I want this to continue. And so we'll look for it tomorrow morning again. But that too, that liking, is just a natural result of prior causes and conditions. We have enjoyed that feeling of warmth in the past, and we now have a habit of enjoying it, and it is conditioning the enjoyment of it in the present. Now, later today, in the afternoon, after the sun had heated up everything and us, and you step outside into the sun, and it's quite hot, that same sun striking that same skin, producing that same feeling of warmth, now feels unpleasant. Right? Too hot. Too hot. And now we don't like it. It's like, oh, i got to get in the shade. I'm going to walk in the shade. Okay, what's going on? Why can't the mind make up its mind? The sun on the skin feels warm and pleasant. The sun on the skin feels warm and unpleasant. Which one is it? Well, this is natural activity of mind. But if we like the pleasant and we dislike the unpleasant, we'll cause ourselves suffering. So we want to distinguish as you, as you move about, as you pay attention to what's going on in the mind, what of what you observe is the natural activity of the mind? And what of what you observe is your investment in it, your entanglement in it? You see the difference? The knowing of warmth that comes. Liking it or disliking it, that's your choice. So this idea in uh, practice is very important to begin to distinguish what is natural activity of mind, body, conditions, and what is your investment? What is it that you personalized about it? Because there is where we start to create, or we plant the seeds of suffering, the clinging, the hanging on, hanging on or rejecting, picking and choosing, liking and disliking. Earlier today, someone asked the question about uh, noticing now that she was sitting and had some developed some uh, momentum to her mindfulness, noticing just how spaced out she was. She asked a question earlier this afternoon. And uh, not only was she noticing how spaced out she was, she felt uh, she judged herself badly about it, you know, felt uh, bad about uh, having such a wandering mind and being spaced out so much. Joseph answered the question appropriately. But when I heard the question, I wondered whether there was some uh, wish, as I have seen in myself, and I sometimes hear from other students, wish that the mind would stop judging. You know, the mind looks around, and it makes all kinds of judgments about people, about places, about where to sit, when to sit, uh, you know, what people are doing, how much they're eating, how much to eat. It, it, the, the mind is making judgments and comparisons, evaluations all the time. And sometimes it's a big, it's a big bother. It's a, big, it's a problem. It becomes a problem when we get attached to or averse to the judgment that the mind makes. 
the mind makes judgments. This is natural activity of the mind. It's comparing. It's always looking and comparing and contrasting and, and doing what it does. It can distinguish the finest subtlety between this place and that place, this person and that person, this tree and that tree, this food and that food. This is what the mind does. To try to stop the mind from doing that is to try to stop the mind from being alive and doing what it does. That's not the problem. The problem is when we get attached to the content of those judgments. Oh, I like this place. I want it. I always want to sit there. And then you come in and somebody's sitting in your place. <laughs> or, you know, a verse. You don't want to experience whatever discomfort in the body when you're sitting. You know, you come in hoping that you won't have any pain in the body. And because you didn't last sitting. You know, you know what they say, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. You know, you have a good sitting and you want the good sitting to last the rest of the day, the rest of the retreat. It doesn't happen. And so the mind makes a comparison. The mind sees, oh, it compares this to that, natural activity of mind. And then we jump in there and say, I prefer this and I don't prefer that. Then we suffer. So we want to begin to recognize what is the natural activity of mind. The mind does this, perception automatically. So we're not trying to stop the mind from doing its natural work. We're just trying to notice when we get entangled in it. When we start to get attached to it or averse to it or uh, angry at it, irritated by it, indulging in it. Because that's where we suffer. So we can see that the, from this kind of activity that this meditation is really the work of the mind. It doesn't really matter whether you're sitting or walking or standing up or lying down, walking fast, walking slow, sitting upright or slumping. It's what is going on in the mind, what is the mind knowing, and how are you relating to it? The Buddha said, the mind is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. The mind is radiant and pure. It is shining. It knows everything. It can know anything. But when the mind is visited by defilements, attachment, aversion, delusion, and all of their subcategories, then we suffer. It is because of these visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Now, in the course of practice, most of us are very familiar with our reactivity to experience. When something happens that we find unpleasant, we get irritated or angry or raging or frustrated or disappointed, some form of aversion. When something pleasant occurs, we like it, we indulge in it, we get attached to it, we crave for more of it, we want it, we, we feel full of it, so to speak. And this causes its own suffering. But there's another area of defilement that I want to me mention tonight. 
and that is defilement in the observing mind. Not only the defilement in reaction to what is being known, but the defilement in the observing mind. What is this? Sometimes we hear the instructions in practice to just you know, relax the body, relax the mind, pay attention. And when we hear that word or that, that instruction to pay attention, the mind grabs, sometimes grabs onto some idea of how to do that. And then we're caught in this striving to make, you know, we get some idea of this is what meditation is. This is what you should be doing. I should be watching the breath. I should stay on the breath. I should, or I should be walking at a certain pace, or I should be sitting in a certain posture, or I should be looking for a certain kind of experience. And we get these ideas. They're just assumptions that appear in the mind, often unrecognized, and we find ourselves midway through the sitting, striving, straining, struggling to do something and not recognizing what's actually going on. This happens a lot. This happens a lot. We get some hidden agenda. There's some expectation in the mind. There's some uh, wanting some kind of experience in the mind or thinking that there should be something happening special and we're looking for that. And the mind just gets tight and brittle. And it doesn't see. It doesn't see clearly. It doesn't let go. It's hanging on to some idea. Or we get some kind of aversion in the observing mind that doesn't want to experience unpleasant experience. You know, when pain comes to the body, most of us are not jumping for joy. We're not. We'd rather have a comfortable sitting. It's true, we would. And when discomfort comes, rather than look at it like the instruction says, well, just what, what is being known? What's, what's, what's appearing? Well, unpleasantness appearing. Rather than doing that, we hang on to the breath. That's, that's the object, hang on to the breath not knowing that we're trying to get away from or we have some aversion to the discomfort. And so there's a defilement in the observing mind itself, wanting to get rid of or wanting to avoid some unpleasant experience. So we want to look for these agendas in our practice. They sneak in. I mean, we're not telling you to have these agendas, but they sneak in from things we've heard, things we've read, things we hope for, things we expect, and they condition how we actually apply our effort in practice. So we want to uh, remind ourselves frequently throughout the day, throughout the sitting, throughout the walking, of what the instruction is, is just to be present. Recognize what's happening. We're not trying to create anything. And 
there's a powerful lesson to be gained many times a day, as Joseph mentioned this afternoon. When you notice that the mind or your awareness has come back after being lost in thought, how did that happen? You've been lost in thought, and automatically you're back. You're not lost. You're aware, being present. We didn't have any intention to be mindful of that moment in that way. We didn't do anything. It just was recognized. What if mindfulness or awareness was that easy all the time? That all it has to be is recognized. We don't have to create it. We don't have to make it happen. We don't have to you know, kind of hold ourselves in a certain way and apply and direct our mind in a certain way. All that may be necessary is to recognize presence of mind. How difficult is that? We know it's very easy. It happens even without our intention. And we recognize it. So when you find yourself struggling and, and trying to be mindful and trying to make it happen, Stop for a minute. Relax. And when I say relax the body, you know what to do. Relax the body, you go, ah, there, relax. And now when I say relax the mind, what do you do? <laughs> it's not so obvious, is it? How to relax the mind. Relaxing the mind is letting go of any agenda. Whatever agenda you have in your mind, let it go. If you sat and did nothing, mindfulness would come get you. But, but, this requires a lot of trust. It requires a lot of trust to, to imagine doing nothing. Now, I'm not telling you to do nothing. I'm telling you to be present but to stop struggling to make something special happen and to relax, to relax the mind. Notice what's happening or let awareness find you. This whole um, discovery, this whole journey of awakening is really a discovery of the way things are. The way things are in the body, the way things are in the mind, the way things are in relationship to each other, the body to the mind, the body to the environment, and so on. And it is a, a gradual accumulation of knowledge, information, because we experience it for ourselves. We see it for ourselves. We understand it for ourselves because we've lived through it. Saito Tejaniya says, the work of awareness is just to know. The work of wisdom is to distinguish what is skillful and unskillful. The work of awareness is just to know. To know all this that's going on in the body, in the mind, in the environment. But it's wisdom that understands what is known, whether it's skillful or unskillful. 
all that we observe is just nature at work. The nature of the body, the nature of the mind, and the nature of mental activity. As we observe it, we begin to understand that this all happens due to causes and conditions. Some of the causes, some of the conditions we know, and many we do not. But as we begin to and continue to pay attention to how things are happening, how it happens that we react or respond or know what we know, we begin to see the threads of causes and conditions that come together and present this moment to us. And it is this understanding which is ultimately freeing. Because it is not we who somehow get rid of the defilements. It's understanding. When we understand what causes suffering and how it causes suffering, then we can let go. But you can't let go of what you don't know you're holding on to. If you don't know you're hanging on to you know, habits and views and opinions and wrong ideas, you can't let go. <clears throat> Paying attention reveals all that, what you're hanging on to. Because hanging on, clinging, craving, attachment, being identified with, is the cause of dukkha. It's the cause of suffering. When you find yourself suffering, you know you're hanging on to something. And as you begin to and continue investigating, looking directly at this suffering and all of its threads, all of its pixels, all of its causes and conditions, eventually you discover, you understand, oh, this is how it happens. This is what is causing this effect. If you remove the cause, the effect disappears. So we don't need to get rid of the defilements. We need to understand the causes of the defilements. And in this way, we free ourselves from suffering. <clears throat> Awareness alone, Sayadaw Wutejaniya says, is not enough. Awareness alone is not enough. We need this understanding. The objective of insight, or the development of this uh, deeply uh, personal understanding, the objective of insight is to know the truth, the nature of things. So understanding is the goal. But when understanding is the goal, peace and happiness are the result. If we aim for peace and happiness, we may never get there. We need to cultivate the causes of peace and happiness, which is understanding. In some ways, our practice here and the whole journey of awakening is like traveling in a foreign land because each moment is new to us. We don't know what's coming next. It's ever-changing, ever-evolving conditions presenting themselves for our recognition. With the right information and intelligence and awareness, we can 
understand things correctly. And it is through understanding that we stop suffering. Again, I had a really good example of this in January when I was traveling in Burma. I was traveling with a friend to a remote uh, subsistence farming village in Burma where we were interested in building a school. Now in this village there's no electricity and there's no no roads, there's no 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 wells for water. It's, it's really poor, poor village. So we met with the uh, abbot of the local monastery, the headmaster of this one-room school building where there was a hundred kids and the village uh, council, the, the village elders. And so we were talking with them and we said we'd like to build a school here because we see that you have these kids and how many kids would come to school if there was a new building and there was 140 more kids that would come and uh, why don't they go to school? Well they don't go to school because they don't have any money for clothes, they don't have any clothes. So okay if we built a school and we provided them clothes, would they come? No, because they can't afford the school fees. Okay, if we, had, if we paid the school fees too, if we built a school and we bought them clothes and we provided the school fees and we bought the supplies for them, would they come? Yes. Okay, so then we said, now, if we build a school, it's going to be uh, an official school. We, we assume or we, we hope that it'll be approved and accepted by the government because the way the government is in Burma, you better do things uh, that they approve of or that they can make trouble. So we just asked this simple question, will this school be accepted by the government? And if it is, then the government provides teachers for the school. So this initiated this long discussion between the translator, the abbot, the headmaster, and the village council. And they were talking and I don't understand Burmese, so I didn't understand what they were saying, but I could see that it was getting pretty, it was getting pretty amped up. And it was, there was some energy there, and there was a lot of uh, emotion going. And then at some point, it all kind of quieted down, and it felt like people were ashamed or kind of scared. or I, I didn't want, I was, I was there, and I was present, and I was watching it, and I could feel all that they seemed to be going through but I didn't know what was going on. So after 10 minutes of this, the translator then said to us, well, and she was kind of sheepish, like, well, you know, this is what I got to tell you. I don't really want to tell you, but this is what I got to tell you, that if you build a school and you put your name on it, the government won't accept it. But if you don't put your name on it, they will. And we said, that's all? <laughs> I mean, it's like, we don't care if we have our name on the school. You know, it was an assumption they had that we wanted, you know, our name on the school, donated by so-and-so. And we didn't. And as soon as they heard that, and as soon as we heard that's what they were concerned about, we said, no problem, we don't care. And they were happy and relieved. But because there was not the right information and they were operating on assumptions, there was no peace and happiness in their mind. And even though I was aware of what was going on, because I was, I was feeling it and seeing it, I didn't understand it. I didn't have the right information. So once you have the right information, and you use your intelligence, and you're aware, then you can arrive at 
the cause for peace and happiness. And this is the way it is in our own body and mind. With the right information and the right intelligence and the right application of awareness, we can arrive at insight. And this is eventually the cause of peace and happiness in our life. This is why we practice. To come to this understanding, this is the way it is in this body and mind. And then to act in accordance with what we know to be true. To act in alignment with what we know to be suffering and the causes of suffering or the end of suffering. As Utejaniya again says, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you'll naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. This will help you to do well in life. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words settle down. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more. And this will help you to do well in life. for listening to the Dhamma. So there's about, uh, let's see, 9.15. So it's about 50 minutes for